Hey, hey, this is Stacey Cradiville, and you're listening to the Cappuccino Mic Drop Podcast. Hello, hello. You are in for quite a treat today because I am interviewing Annika Castrovanc, math teacher here at CAP, and she's got so much to share in this episode. You're going to die when you hear about her career before becoming a teacher. Super interesting. And she's got really solid advice and strategies for how she teaches uh, students who are not native English speakers in her math class. I was slightly surprised by her answer to my opening question here. So let's see if you can take a guess at what you think Annika is going to say here. Would you rather grade 50 essays or plan for three sub days? What do you think she's going to say? Okay, so a lot of people wouldn't think that a math teacher would have to be concerned with grading essays. But as an IB teacher, we have our IAs that we have to grade. And usually we have our IAs due in December, the end of the fall semester, so that we can spend two glorious weeks over winter break grading all these 10-page math research projects. So what would I rather do? Oh, hell, I would much rather write three subplans, three days worth of subplans, than grade my IAs. Am I allowed to do that? Can I swap in my IAs and instead write subplans? I mean, I would yeah. totally go for that. Because yeah, that fortunately, we swap off in the math department. Second year IB classes, we rotate. You only do that every other year. So you get one Christmas break, one winter break, you get to enjoy the next one you suffer, the next one you enjoy, the next one you suffer. <laughs> So math teachers, we feel English teachers' pain every other year, and I would much rather write some plans. Wow. For sure. I thought for sure you were going to say the three days of subplans because that is a lot of work to put together, but grading and reading IA sounds like a lot as well. And with math ones, not only does their prose have to make sense? You have to check all their math. You have to check all their math calculations and make sure that all the math is correct. And then you also have to make sure that it makes sense and that it flows and it's logical and organized and original. Oh my gosh, originality. Holy cow. Trying to keep them from copying other people's work. It's brutal. So there's a reason why I'm not an English teacher. I didn't want to be grading essays, but as an IB math teacher, yeah, we have to read a lot of essays when we teach second year IB. And I mean, some of them are really great, but it's an awful lot of work. So yeah, yeah. I'd rather I'll take the subplants. And those, those internal assessments, what do the students have to do? What does that project look like? So they have to choose a topic of their choice. And oftentimes they have a really hard time doing that. So I'll over the years, I've steered them towards certain topics that work really well. And it's generally an investigation. So they want to try and learn something new while they're doing their investigation. And it also has to be at a high level of mathematics. So it's got to be something either at the level of the course or beyond the level of the course. So for example, one thing that I had students do is favorite project of mine is to take like a cartoon character and put a grid over it, a coordinate plane over it, and then write equations to represent all the curves and lines to create the cartoon character. Usually do that in Desmos. And so students have to use all kinds of different functions, you know, parabolas for curves, sine functions, absolute value functions, all kinds of different functions. And they have to learn how to make them really precise and to match the character. And one thing that 
is beyond the level of our course is how to rotate. So how to do rotations of different shapes. So if you have a parabola, you shape parabola. It's normally either, you know, open up or open down or to the side, left or right. But what if you want it at a 45 degree angle or a 30 degree angle? How do you rotate a parabola? So that's been, you know, the kind of thing that kids then have to sort of dig in and do research and play around with it and try and figure it out. Um, and they have to do that on their own. So that is an example. And it takes a lot of time playing around, trying to get it right when you're trying to recreate this work of art using mathematical equations. So there's a lot of math involved. And then the write-up part, then the student has to talk about what was their process and what did they learn and reflect on it? What else do they think? they Where could they take this from here? Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. So the last time that I read IAs, was that last year? <laughs> I can't think. The last time, last couple time of years. doesn't exist anymore. Oh, been crazy. So yeah. I think it was last year. Um, I read IAs and I had some kids who wrote over 20 pages in their IAs and that they're only supposed to be 10 to 12 pages long. And I had kids doing 20 pages and it was like, wow. I mean, they really dug in. They really got into it. And so I had one student who did her design. She figured out three different ways to write all of her equations. So she basically wrote three papers wow. <laughs> and, in one. So yeah. And then I also, they turn in a rough draft. And so I read the rough draft, I give them feedback, and then they turn it in again. And so it's a lot. It is a lot of grading and reading. And then plus all the math that's within it as well that has to be checked. And it's a tremendous responsibility. And yes. yeah, I wouldn't want to do it every year. It's right. definitely, <laughs> definitely, I like to have my winter break every other year. So this year, I didn't have to do it. I was not teaching an IB class at all this year. So I had a lovely winter break. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So you're not teaching IB this year, but I do want to hear what you are teaching and your journey starting out in the teaching world and all of that. Okay. So starting out in the teaching world, I didn't get into teaching until I was in my 30s. So I spent the decade of my 20s being a cartographer. I used to make maps. And in fact, Anybody who was probably born before the year, let's see, when did they stop publishing? Probably if you were born in 1990 or previously, you have all seen my work because I used to work for the Pacific Bell Yellow Pages and the phone book had a map on the back. And that was me. I was the cover girl, map maker. I made all the maps for the entire state of California and Nevada because every region has its own set of books. And so I made the books. I made the maps that were on the back of the Yellow Pages. Plus, there were a bunch of maps in the front of the Yellow Pages and what were called the smart, what were they called? The smart pages or something. I don't even remember now. It's been so long ago. But I made all these maps that went in there. It's like, you know, congressional districts, zip codes, places to go, um, transit maps. So that was my previous life. I was That's so cool. I don't think I've ever heard about like the person who made maps. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. That sounds yeah. so cool. Yeah. And it was great because, you know, I could walk into anybody's house and they'd say, yeah, so what do you do? I'm like, you got a phone book? Yeah, I made that. <laughs> You have my product in your house. We give it to you for free. Everybody can see my work. And the funny thing about being the cartographer for all the phone books is that 
I really got to know all the cities and towns in California. And so I would like go driving across the state and I'd come to a little town and I'd be like, oh, Clovis. Oh, yeah. City Hall should be down here. Three blocks, two blocks to the left. And I've never been there before, but I've made these maps for years and years. So I always had this sense of deja vu when I would be driving into a new town in California because I had made maps of literally every town in California. So why am I a teacher? It was incredibly boring. (laughs) It was the dullest job. So I actually had a really interesting cartography job when I first got out of college because I was not a math major. Shock. Okay. So math teacher did not major in math. I actually majored in geography. I was a physical geographer. So that's kind of like geology a little bit. And when I came out of college, I got hired right away making animated maps for Apple computers. So I worked on educational software. And then that was just a short-term gig. And then I worked for the University of California, making maps for professors and graduate students. And then I got hired away from that job by Pacific Bell to make maps for the Yellow Pages. And it was probably the biggest mistake of my life because it was really fun and interesting working at UC Berkeley and working with all these professors and grad students. And then when I went to Pacific Bell, oh my gosh, the tedium and the boredom. It was just awful. So when I was working for the University of California, I met a lot of people who were into wilderness trips. So I had friends there who were outings leaders for the Sierra Club. And so they roped me into becoming a national outings leader for the Sierra Club. So I would take people into the wilderness on like one week or two week donkey assisted backpacking trips. So we'd have donkeys with us who would carry our gear and then we'd hike into the wilderness. And so I met those people that, you know, that I worked with at Berkeley. And then they introduced me to another set of people who were whitewater rafting guides. And so I'm like, well, that sounds cool. So I got into whitewater rafting and my friends guided for an organization At the time, it was called Inner City Outings. It's now changed its name to Inspiring Connections Outdoors. It's also part of the Sierra Club. And the mission there is to take people who otherwise would not have the opportunity, take them into the wilderness and take them whitewater rafting. And so we would work with schools, mostly schools, but also community agencies from mostly San Francisco and Oakland. So I worked with like the Tenderloin Youth Services. I worked with Hunter's Point Gym. I worked with Oakland Technical High School. I worked with International Studies Academy in San Francisco, which is where I met Angela Rodriguez, our very own Angela Rodriguez. And from that experience, I was taking all these teenagers, whitewater rafting. I decided, you know what? This is what I really love doing. I have this totally boring job during the week. And then I live for the weekends when I'm taking high school kids whitewater rafting. And I thought there's got to be a way to finagle this into a job. So I thought, huh, I'll do what Angela Rodriguez does. I'll become a high school teacher. And so that was my journey. So from whitewater rafting, to classroom teacher. So when I first came to Cappuccino, I joined up with Tucker in the science department. She was running the environmental club. So I joined up with her to have my own little whitewater rafting club. (laughs) And so for a few years, I would take the Cappuccino environmental club, whitewater rafting, snow camping, canoeing, stuff like that. And then though, I got pregnant and that put a big halt to that. It's like, it's really hard to do all those activities with a baby on your hip. 
but that is my teaching journey. That's how I got here. Wow. And you've been at CAP ever since? You've only taught at CAP? I've only taught at CAP. So I did my student teaching at El Camino up in South City. And I did my student teaching in the fall. And so I was done in January. And I got, there's not too many jobs available when you're looking for a job in January. And I had the option of teaching middle school math and science in at an all-girls school in San Francisco full-time, or I could teach two periods of math A, which is like pre-algebra, here at Cappuccino. And I was like, I don't want to be a science teacher. I've been practicing to be a math teacher. And going in full-time right off the bat, I was like, eh. I had some money saved up from my amazing career as a cartographer. So I'm like, let's take the part-time gig. And so that's what I did. I took a two-fifths position here at Cappuccino in the spring for two math A classes that had had a series of substitute teachers for the entire first semester of school. So talk about trial by fire. Those (laughs) kids, whoo, they were wild. (laughs) But I was used to crazy challenges. As a whitewater rafting guide, I'm used to just like taking people outside their comfort zones and trying to make them feel comfortable and just making the best of a tough situation. So here I am. The rest is Wow. That is such a interesting story. I love that you shared that whole journey. So now you're teaching, what are the math classes you're teaching now? So, well, my specialty is a lot of people know is English learners. So I was interested in that way back when, like probably like my second or third year of teaching I noticed that I had students coming into my freshman math classes who didn't speak a word of English. And we presumably had a sheltered algebra class, but we didn't have a sheltered pre-algebra class. And back then you could take pre-algebra, like two years of pre-algebra, and you didn't even have to take algebra to graduate from high school back then. So I had students like in my pre-algebra class who couldn't speak any English. And I was like, oh my gosh, how do I teach them? This is crazy. And we only had a sheltered algebra class. So once they had to be in like these mainstream math classes before they could get to the sheltered class, which seems a little weird now, but maybe I'm remembering it wrong. But I was thinking something needs to be done to help these kids because this is so not working. And so when the teacher who had been teaching the sheltered class, he actually moved to the East Coast. I was like, I will take it on. I want to learn how to do this. I want to get involved. So the thing that helped me the most in being able to really work well, I think, with the population was having a very empathetic experience of my own. I decided I needed to learn Spanish because most of the students that I was getting who didn't speak English, they were all Spanish speakers and I didn't speak any Spanish. So I took Latin in high school. Total waste of time. Anyway, I decided to learn Spanish by going to Spain. So I went to Spain, signed up for a intensive language course where I lived with a family in Madrid, and I went to Spanish class for six hours a day, Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, I would buy myself bus ticket and go off and try and survive using my very limited Spanish. And it was an incredible experience because there I was in this country by myself. I didn't speak the language. Pretty much nobody speaks English in Spain. 
and just trying to, you know, that stress, that day-to-day stress of trying to deal with this other culture, this other language. I did not understand that people did not eat dinner at six o'clock in the afternoon. It took me like a month to figure that out. I could not understand culturally what was going on. It was totally disorienting. And people would make fun of me in my class where I was trying to learn Spanish because I was the only American in the class. Everybody else was European and they could all roll their R's <laughs> and I couldn't. <laughs> so they'd always like laugh at me. I was like the worst student in the class. And it really made me come back to the United States going, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I mean, these students who are coming to this country and experiencing this culture shock and trying to learn a new language, I'm like, they are heroic. They are absolute heroes. And I've got to do everything I possibly can to support this. And I got to be the best teacher I can possibly be and give them the best experience I can. And spending that first month there in Spain trying to learn Spanish just really flipped how I thought about my students and how to teach my students and how to really understand where they're coming from. So that really solidified my journey from then on out. Absolutely. That's quite the experience. And I think about that all the time. I never lived out of the country or had that overseas experience like that, but I definitely empathize with my students that are newcomers because some of them are here without even their parents and like trying to navigate school is really tough, really tough. So what are some tips that you have like picked up along the way that you would share with other teachers for teaching our EL kids? Well, one thing that's super important is to giving them opportunities to practice speaking and listening And of course, reading and writing. I think they get a lot of reading and writing in English. That kind of is just a natural part of the curriculum. But I think oftentimes people are afraid to ask their EL students to speak, speak publicly, and also to listen and demonstrate that they're listening. So, I mean, every day in class, if you can read, write, speak, and listen in English, that's going to go a long ways. I think about my own experience sitting in that classroom in Spain, and I was put on the spot every minute of every day. It's like, your turn, now you say it. And so giving you know, that opportunity to practice, to interact, to listen, and to repeat back as many opportunities as you can to get them to interact and using the English. And so, for example, in my class, very first day of class, the very first thing that we do in my class is everybody goes to the whiteboard. I have whiteboards on all all my walls. They go with a partner and I have interview questions and they have to ask their partner, what is your name? Where are you from? And then like a math related question. And then they have to introduce their partner to the class. So day one, everybody is speaking, writing in English and then listening to each other. And that all have activities too, where they have one person has to speak while the other person has to point. So they'll have put something on the board and one person is reading the little speech they made and the other person has to appoint at the appropriate place (laughs) on the diagram or whatever so that they're practicing their listening or listening to English. And I know they're listening because they're pointing in the right place or I know they're not understanding what they're listening to because they're not pointing in the right place. So those opportunities to practice, practice, practice. And a lot of times I think people are worried about, oh, they're going to be scared and it's going to, they're going to be nervous and it's going to put them too much on the spot. 
I found, yeah, the first day it can be kind of terrifying, but I do it every day. It's like every day they have an opportunity to get up and speak in front of the class. So for example, I get new students every week. So last week I got three new students from Brazil and their first day in class, it's like, you're going to get up in front of the class and you're going to talk. You're going to say your problem. You're going to read it to the class and say the answer. And I had this one boy who was shaking and he's like, I can't, I can't. So I stood next to him. I said, I'm going to say each word and you just repeat after me. So I stood next to him and I was like five and he's like five plus plus, you know, and he got through it and he was like, oh, so relieved. Next day, same thing. He was super nervous again. So I'm like, I'm going to stand next to you. It's going to be okay. He did it. And he's like, ah, good. Day three, he was fine. He did the whole thing by himself, no shaking, and he's off and running. Today, he was going to present, and then that fire alarm went off. (laughs) But he was ready. He's like, I'm ready. I'm ready. (laughs) You know, so he's only been in my class. This is the second week in the class. He's already presented three times. And now he's like, I'm ready. So that's the thing. Don't be afraid to have students speak and speak as often as possible. Speak English listen to English, demonstrate that you're listening, read, write, speak, and listen every day. Totally. That makes me think of when I used to teach dance and people will be like, oh, like, is there an option for kids that don't feel comfortable getting on stage? Like, can they work in the crew or something like that? I'm like, everyone needs to get on stage. You need to work through that fear. You need to be uncomfortable. You need to put yourself out there. It's not a language. It's moving your whole body, which might be different for some folks, but it's the same kind of challenge that you're trying to overcome is your right. fear. You got to right. get uncomfortable. You're never going to grow. You'll never get on stage and you'll never experience that experience, right? You'll yeah. never have that rush of excitement or the adrenaline. You got to get out of your comfort zone and just go try things. So right. I think that's really great advice to just remind teachers that kids can be challenged to go out of their comfort zone and we can put them on the spot with in a caring way where you're supporting the student and standing there and helping them through it rather than just cold calling and expecting kids to know how to answer. Right. And let them know ahead of time. Okay. This is what we're going to be doing. We're going to prepare. We're going to practice. And then if you want me to, I will stand there right with you and do it. And I also always have students, they're generally in pairs or in trios. And I also like using the the, sort of the interview thing. So it's like you're not presenting your own idea. You're presenting somebody else's idea. That's a nice way to also go about it. This is Stacy. She is from San Bruno. She thinks five plus negative two is three. Not my idea. (laughs) So get that little bit of distance also is a nice way, I think, to get kids to sort of lighten up. They're not presenting their ideas. They're presenting what somebody else is saying. And yeah, and eventually it just flows. Yeah. So you did go to Spain to learn Spanish, but how much of it are you using in your teaching? Are you doing it mostly in English? Mi español es muy limitado. There it is. You heard my Spanish. Okay. So what did I learn? (laughs) My Spanish is terrible. (laughs) So. I will explain like one-on-one. I'll work with kids one-on-one and I'll use my horrible Spanish. But what I find though, is I've had kids who've arrived at the beginning of the year, not speaking a word of English, not understanding any English, and they really appreciate my slaughtered, horrible Spanish. I think it also helps sort of lower that effective domain. Am I using that phrase right? 
because it's like, here's this teacher who Spanish is terrible, yet she's willing to say it publicly and in front of everybody. And mm -hmm. I'm willing to put myself out there and sound like a baby. I speak baby gibberish. I can only speak in the present tense. If I want to say something in the past tense, I say, en pasado. <laughs> and then I speak in the present tense. <laughs> you know, it's horrible. So they see that I'm willing to take these risks, that I'm willing to slaughter this language to try and communicate. And we start the year that like that. And then usually by the end of the year, I'll have students going, saying, okay, please, miss, don't speak Spanish, please. <laughs> it's like they wait, they surpass me by the end of the year. But yeah, when I'm teaching, I do not teach in Spanish because first of all, not all my students are Spanish speaking. So in my classroom, I have Spanish, Portuguese, Arabic, Cantonese, and Mandarin, and Mongolian right now. So I've got six languages. So I do instruct in English, but then I will have, you know, aside conversations or work one-on-one -on -one with students in Spanish. And the crazy thing is, though, is that Spanish is so my default language that I'll be working with a kid who is from Yemen and speaks Arabic, and she won't be understanding what I'm saying. And so I'll switch into Spanish. And then we both start laughing because she'll be like, you're speaking Spanish. I don't know Spanish. <laughs> it's just like this. Oh, they don't understand language number one. Let's try language number two. You never know. There might be something <laughs> that sounds similar that they could find. Oh, just sort of this <laughs> knee-jerk reaction. I just like start, okay, this isn't working. Let's try this language. But that young lady from Yemen, her Spanish though is getting really good. Let me tell you. <laughs> That's the one thing I always guarantee. When you show up at Cappuccino, if you don't know English or Spanish, you will know one of them by the end of the year. It might not be English, but you will know Spanish because there is so much Spanish speaking happening in class. That's another thing that really helps too is have students practice in their native languages. So have them talk to each other in their native language about what it is that they're learning. So for example, if I'm introducing the concept of slope of a line, then have them talk about what do you think? How would we say that in Spanish? How would you refer to slope? What would that be? And you know, it's pendiente. And what does that mean to you? And let's talk about that and have them have a conversation in their home language to make sure that they understand conceptually what's happening in their first language and then also in English as well. So I really encourage students to speak to each other in class in the language that they're most comfortable in to try and negotiate meaning out of what they're learning. So that's also a super important thing is to encourage the production of their native language. That's really great. And I, we did these empathy interviews, right? Talking to students about in the margins about their experiences at CAP. And one of the students that I talked to said that she really appreciated, it was a kudos for CAP, that we don't expect them to lose their home language. And I think that her experiences prior to CAP were that she would only speak English at school. Uh -huh. Only English, only English. And so she really appreciated that it was a different vibe here that she could speak her home language and was encouraged to keep the home language. Yes. No, we went bilingualism or we went polyglots. Let's get as many languages as we can. Absolutely. Now, and then like I try and get the kids to teach me new things. So right now I'm trying to learn how to count to 10 in Mandarin. It's not going well, but... <laughs> I'm trying to learn that. And so I encourage them to teach me something from your language. And given how I've been, what, I've been practicing Spanish now for, oh my gosh, 
22 years and that's still terrible. <laughs> I don't have great hope for myself for additional languages, but just trying to make the effort and also valuing people's help languages. And yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you want to be bilingual? I mean, that's crazy to right. support monolingual culture. It's like, no, I want you to speak as many languages as you can. Right. Open up the doors, opportunities yep. for career. Yeah. And just communication in general to be able to talk to people. Yeah. Oh, and I feel like the world. I also feel like I'm learning English better when I study Spanish. I mean, there's so much more I understand now about English now that I've been like studying Spanish. Like I came to this epiphany over limpiar and lavarse because I couldn't really understand why do we have these two different words for wash? And then I'm like, oh my gosh, we do that in English. You wash your hands, but you clean the kitchen, clean and wash. And then you use them in different situations. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like stuff that I've never thought about before and irregular verbs. So I'm just having a second language, learning a second language. It opens up so much more information and knowledge about your own primary language. And why do we say things in a certain way? And why do we order words in a certain way? I mean, it's just so fascinating. And just, you know, I get all these questions all the time in my mind when I hear how is something said in Spanish? And I go, oh, but we say it like this in English. Why is that? So I love that constant learning. I do too. And it's funny that you teach math because you don't think about all of this language stuff when you think about. Right. People always go, yeah, it must be easy to teach math, right? Math is the same everywhere you go. It's like math is taught, first of all, with language. How do you explain concepts unless you can communicate and you have a language? And then we have to apply math to the real world. And so, you know, it's so this idea that numbers exist in a vacuum without any context and without language is just like, yeah, no, that's <laughs> not the way it is. We have to communicate a lot in math and the concepts sometimes can be so abstract. You know, it's like, it can be really difficult. It takes a long time. So I actually have my English learners. I have them for twice as long as I have native English speakers. So my EL kids, they get two periods of math. So they get me for algebra and they get me for algebra support because it takes, I always say it takes twice as long to do half as much when you're trying to learn something in a different language. So I need the extra time. And fortunately, the school has been really supportive about that. It took me a long time. I fought for many years to try and get those sections because they were offering algebra support to English speakers, but they weren't offering it to non-English speakers, to the ELs. And that took me several years battling with the district to get those sections allocated. I mean, it was ridiculous. It's like, really? Native English speakers need two hours of math, but non-English speakers can learn it in one hour? Like, how do you justify that? It was crazy. Yeah, it totally makes sense that we would have that. So I'm so glad. It used to be the other way. It used to be that native English speakers got two hours of math, algebra and algebra support, and non-English speakers would only get one hour of math. And now I've managed to move things even further so that I have a co-teacher, Rigo Alvarez and I co-teach the algebra class. And a big part of that is because our numbers change as the year goes on. I think everybody perhaps has seen the announcements that new sections have opened up for EL because I started out the year with 12 students in my EL algebra class. And we now have 
39, I believe. And I've actually moved a couple of kids out into mainstream because their English had progressed. So I would have had even more than 39 in my class. So it started at 12, now at 39. And I've gotten the district to come on board and giving, you know, Rigo and I this co-taught class so that when the numbers reach unmanageable amount, we were able to split the class. And so now we're in separate classrooms. So last semester we were together in the same classroom, but now we've, we've split apart because the numbers are huge. And now we're splitting my second period class, my algebra support class, which I had by myself. And now we're splitting that into two sections because the numbers are just, they keep going up. I got three new kids last week. I got one new kid this week. And I'm sure, you know, all the people in PE and in the, in all the elective courses are feeling the impact too. You know, it's like, oh, look, I don't recognize this name. (laughs) Yeah, we're getting the new kids every day. And so that's why it's really important. And I'm appreciating these conversations to talk to other teachers. Like, what are you doing? Because I just need to learn as much as I can about how to better support my newcomers and all of my EL English learners. And actually, I've been reading and I don't even like the term English learners anymore. I read a term that said our emerging multilingual students. And I like that it decentered English being like the thing that you're striving for. We're striving for multilingualism. Uh-huh. So I want to, that's a students. mouthful. It is, it is, <laughs> it is the mouthful. I need a, an acronym for that, like to add that to the list of acronyms, but yeah. So you said you moved a couple kids out into mainstream. What is the process like for that? Like, do you just recommend a student to that you don't think yeah. anymore. Well, pretty much once they have the English teachers basically sort of sort of make the decision for me. If they move a kid from ELD2 to ELD3, that's my sort of dividing point. Once they're in ELD3, that I'm like you're out the door, off you go into the big wide world. And that's when I send them off. With though, with the caveat that if you don't feel comfortable there, if it's not going well, that you can come back. So I have had, that's why I said only one kid has left. I've actually had several kids in ELD3, but some of them have come back. I want them to be successful and I don't want to overwhelm them. So I've had one who's gone to the mainstream and been successful there and is thriving. So yay. But then I had two others who we're in ELD three and we're like, yeah, and wanted to come back to sheltered. So they're back and sheltered. So we only have the sheltered EL algebra for one year. And then when they go to geometry, then they get mainstreamed. And what we did this year is we actually have co-taught classes, sort of a push-in model. So Rigo Alvarez and myself, we push in to some mainstream geometry classes to support our emerging bilingual, multilingual scholars, what was it, (laughs) to support them in the mainstream. So Rigo is, you know, he pushes in with a cohort of kids who are in a mainstream geometry class. And I do the same thing with Mr. Myers in another class. And so we can keep an eye on that, make sure they're not sinking, make sure they're swimming. That's great. That sounds really awesome. Yeah, we used to have a a sheltered geometry class, and we both felt that the kids just weren't progressing enough. We felt like they were ready to push a little harder. And not having native English speakers in the class, I think we felt was sort of holding them back 
on their vocabulary development. So we wanted to give them more exposure to more students who were speaking English so that they could sort of broaden their vocabulary and have more practice speaking with native English speakers. So that's where we have evolved into at this point. And I like it. I think it's really good. Having wow, us you- the kids. But- <laughs> <laughs> that's all sounding so great. You shared so many tips for teachers to apply in any subject area of how to support your emerging multilingual students. But do you have any mic dropping teacher advice for others or mic dropping teacher advice that's been given to you? Okay. I was thinking about this because I know I was supposed to come up with something mic dropping and no pressure. Yeah. I mean, I kind of just think about for maybe just like for new teachers, this is going to probably sound like the craziest thing. But when I first became a teacher, I talked to my mom because my mom had been a high school choir teacher. She was a musician and she taught high school choir and glee club. So her words of advice to me, and this is going to sound, this might sound terrible, but she was like, it's like training dogs. You are a dog trainer. So you got to be the alpha, be the alpha. You're the pack leader, the leader of the pack. And when you train dogs, you've got to have that presence you got to be present. And then what do dogs respond to? They respond to treats, positive reinforcement. So the one thing that when I first started teaching that I watched a lot of was the dog whisperer, Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of, I know this sounds like crazy. But I'm looking at the look on your face. What is she talking about? But the thing about Cesar Milan is that he really, he exudes that confidence you got to have the confidence. Like I'm here. I belong here. I know what I'm doing. I'm the alpha. I've got it. This is it. And I think a big part of that is kind of the same thing that you get from being a whitewater rafting guide. When I take people whitewater rafting, I'm taking them into a potentially life-threatening situation. And I have to show up with a lot of confidence and exude a lot of integrity and skill and say, you're going to be okay with me. You can trust me. You're going to be fine. I'm going to get you through this. We're going to work through this together. And that's the same thing that you notice with Cesar Milan. If you watch the dog whisper, you know, he comes into a situation and he takes control and he makes the dogs feel like, yeah, we're good. Everything's fine here. We don't have to be nervous. We don't have to fight. Everything's going to be okay. So I don't know. You might want to edit all that out, but... (laughs) But that was I the see advice. Where you were going with that. I wasn't sure at first, but I do see how you have to be confident so that your students can have that trust with yeah, you. Yeah, it, again, it's that sort of that you're the alpha, and the alpha isn't a bully. The alpha isn't somebody who attacks others. The alpha is just the one who gives other people confidence or in the world of dog training, it's the one that the other animals are going to follow that they're going to listen to. So you have to sort of have that alpha mentality that I'm the one that you can trust that I'm here. I'm going to be in control. Um, But then also, you know, the thing about positive reinforcement, training a dog by punishing them isn't a good way to train. But my favorite phrase is you can catch more bees with honey than with vinegar. (laughs) 
Positive reinforcement has always been the name of the game for me. Catching students doing the right thing, ignoring when they're doing the wrong thing. I don't take notice of when they're off task. Instead, I wait for them to be on task and I go, then I reward them, you know, with, hey, look at Pedro. He's doing awesome. This is fabulous. Look at what he's doing. Maria, awesome. I love that you're doing that on the board. Diana, super job. Look what you're doing there. I love how you got out your pencil and your notebook. So all that sort of positive reinforcement. And if you watch Caesar Milan, <laughs> there's a lot of positive reinforcement going on. So that was the advice my mom gave me. She was like, you are, that's sort of the, the parallel. You're the dog trainer. You got to be the alpha. So being the alpha, being confident. The other thing though, that really gets me through my career and the things that I've made as choices in my career is came from my mentor as a whitewater rafting guide was an English teacher at Oakland Tech High School. She was one of the founders of the organization, Inspiring Connections Outdoors, that I learned to be a whitewater guide through. And she said, you got to take risks in your life. Otherwise, you stay within a very small, safe sphere and you never become all that you could be. So whenever something scares me, I always think I need to push past this fear. I need to move through this and come out the other side and I will be better for it. So whenever I get nervous about doing something or something seems overwhelming, I always take a big, deep breath and say, if this scares me, it's probably worth doing it's going to make me a better person. So that is, that is what has led me through my life. You know? And mic drop. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> That's great stuff. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for making time to talk to me. I don't think we would have otherwise had an opportunity to ever talk about your career, your journey to teaching, any of these other things. So it's such a unique experience I'm having with this podcast. Yeah. I bet you never knew that you probably had my my work in your home when you were a young girl. <laughs> never knew. Never Not there knew. now. Those things now I feel like I've known you my whole life. <laughs> That's right. I was that cover girl. <laughs> Made your maps on your phone book. Woo. <laughs> but thank you again for your time. I don't want to keep you much longer. Is there anyone else that you think I should definitely reach out to for the podcast? Like you have a recommendation for who's next? Ah, I won't tell them if you, (laughs) I don't know. Let me think about, cause I mean, when you talk to people, you're going to find out something unique and interesting. I know I'm trying to, I'm hoping eventually I'll get to every single person eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got some cool story, but right. So, I mean, right off the top of my head, Julie Habib jumps to mind. But I'm sure everybody has a story to tell and I don't even know them. So I can't wait to find out who you're interviewing next. (laughs) Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. So whenever you get a chance, send me a photo. Yes. We'll do. (laughs) All right. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. That was such an incredible interview that I'm kind of speechless afterwards. Annika just shared so many cool things about her life. And I really appreciated hearing more specifically how she supports her English learners in a math class too, where you don't think about language, or at least I didn't think about language being that closely related. And we've always had English learners and emerging multilingual students in our classes, but now having so many more newcomers, I think it just brings to light how much more support we need to be giving. 
at least for me, I'm really thinking about how can I continue to talk to more and more teachers and learn new ways to help their language development in my class. So thank you, Annika, for sharing those wonderful words of wisdom. And I look forward to learning from more of you in future interviews. Thank you, team. Have a wonderful day.